Financial services firms are choosing between build and buy for Gen AI in the tax function. Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Insights. I think the biggest question for our clients is a build versus buy conversation. Is As we talked about, there's going to be a need to upskill. That costs money. There's a need for tax talent that's hard to find in the marketplace. And technology budgets are strained everywhere. And so our clients have to decide, are they going to go it alone to build tax models? Or are they going to lean on a third-party provider that has scale and investment to leverage that investment going forward? Learn more at EY.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, people have been asking for this episode for a long time. Yeah, um, there's a lot going on right now, definitely. A uh, lot of thing, a lot of balls in the air. But there is a one topic, that one particular topic that's been brewing for a while as a source of concern is what's going to happen with commercial real estate, particularly office buildings. That's right. So we recently had uh, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, and that set off, you know, a, a little bit of a banking crisis. But a lot of people are talking about the next shoe to drop really being on the property or the real estate side. And obviously, there's been a lot of concern about what exactly is going on with office buildings. But, you know, just interest rates going up in general tends to be bad for real estate as a broader category. So I think this is something that we really need to dig into. Yeah, I mean, right. So obviously, real estate, my understanding is that it's a highly leveraged industry in almost any factor, whether it's malls or office buildings or apartments or single family homes. There's a lot of borrowing. Ergo, I think rates matter. And like every other industry, it's dealing with this reversal of a long downtrend. And then with office REITs in particular, we all know that working from home is still a thing. Not everyone goes to the office every day like they were. And so companies are reducing footprints. And so if you are the owner of commercial property, you may be looking at a double whammy in which, A, your loan is set to reset or your commercial mortgage that you plan to roll over is set to reset. And at the same time, because of vacancies, your business is not as good as maybe it was in 2019. So potentially a major stress point emerging for a lot of players. And the other thing I would say is even without the pandemic and even without the work from home trend, there was concern about excess in commercial real estate or CRE, you know, even prior to 2020. I remember when I was at the Financial Times, I was writing a lot about the bond market and credit markets. And I used to write a lot of stories about, you know, subpar underwriting in commercial mortgage-backed securities and uh, investors really reaching for yield in that sector. And there was one person I spoke to quite a lot when I was doing those stories. And so I am very pleased to say that we, we do have the perfect guest for this episode. We are going to be speaking to Rich Hill. I knew him when he was an analyst at Morgan Stanley, but he is now over at Cohen & Steers as head of real estate strategy 
and research. So, Rich, thank you so much for coming on All Thoughts. Yeah, thanks so, so much for having me. So maybe just to begin with, you know, Joe kind of alluded to this in the intro, but commercial real estate, it's not a monolith. There are a lot of different subsectors within that broad category, and there are a lot of different actors, so lenders, investors, things like that. Can you talk to us a little bit about the ecosystem? What does the ecosystem of CRE actually look like? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Look, I, I actually don't agree, disagree with anything you said in uh, uh, your your remarks to start this, uh, but maybe we just start off by talking about the size of the commercial real estate market. We estimated it's around a twenty trillion dollar market. That's a that's a pretty big market, and if you think about commercial real estate, everyone thinks about it as a singular asset class, but it's really fifteen different property types under one umbrella, and in many cases, those fifteen different property types are sometimes like my kindergartner. They move to one side of the room and then the other side of the room. The fundamentals don't necessarily <laughs> all act the same. So you have office. You Just have, for the fun of it or is there a reason? <laughs> <laughs> why, why the fundamentals don't uh, uh, move in the same direction? Why people move around so much. Yeah, well, you know, what, what I would just, uh, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that, you know, you have office, you have retail, you have multifamily. What drives multifamily fundamentals might be much different than what drives retail fundamentals. And we haven't even really started talking about some of the subsectors like healthcare, for instance, or mm. data centers or cell towers. There's a whole host of different property types that are out there that, you know, Yes, commercial real estate is a singular asset class, but in many respects, you know, as a as a uh, strategist and a researcher, I'm covering 15 different parts of the economy that all have a singular commercial real estate umbrella, but but they have different fundamental drivers. Right. So this is really important. Some sort of midtown office space here in New York that maybe in 2019 was leasing out to was being leased out to like tech startups or something is going to be very different from a building that's sort of specialized in doctor clinics in which probably there is not much like work from home activity happening in there. And so they're just, to yes, they're both commercial real estate, but they might be very different fundamentals. For sure. And, and, and frankly, I'll take that one step further. Sure. You know, the, the office property in Tampa, Florida might be very different than the office yes. property in New York City. Are they going to the office in Tampa, Florida? Uh, believe it or not, they are going to. Uh, to what are the numbers like? How like you know? I know there's like trackers of like different cities, and there's a lot of coverage in in the media for obvious yep. reasons because many of us are here in New York City. But how does New York City like? Why don't you talk a little bit about what the numbers look like? Yeah, if you're talking about New York City return to office, we're still well below you know call it fifty percent. Okay. You know, utility rates, if you will, people actually using office, call it in the thirty to fifty percent range. But if you go to the Sunbelt, and there's a lot of reasons why this is the case. If you go to Sunbelt states, return to office and um, use of office space is a lot higher than that. It's not surprising to see it sixty, seventy, maybe even a little bit higher than that. So there is a big difference between how people in maybe, let's say, New England states are using office versus, um, uh, let's just say, Tampa, Florida, Austin, what have you. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is, in addition to there being a lot of subsectors within the umbrella of commercial real estate, there are a lot of different ways that people actually measure what's going on in that market. So, you know, one CRE specific term that you hear a lot is cap rates. You obviously have property prices and then you have valuations and you also have what's going on with the mortgage REITs, so publicly listed real estate investors. And, you know, depending on which one of those you look at at the moment, you kind of get a really mixed 
picture of what's actually going on with CRE. Can can you explain that? Like, why why are these different things painting a, a, a different view of of the market? Yeah, it's a it's a really great great question. I think it's something that's maybe sometimes misunderstood. If you were to go back to three Q twenty two, so not that long ago, yeah, the REIT market was down more than thirty percent year to date. But believe it or not, private valuations were still up. You know, more than 10% on a year-to-date basis. Huge divide, 40% divide between what the listed market was telling you and what the private market was telling you. What happens is the listed market, so that's publicly traded REITs, are always a leading indicator for the private market. They go down before the private market and they go up before the private market. Why is that the case? Well, listed REITs you know, get a mark on them every single day. People buy and sell stocks. On the other hand, valuing a property can be pretty hard. You have to go get an appraisal for that. And so there is an inherent lag on when private markets actually correct to listed markets. Do they always follow hand in hand? Not always. If you go back to the late 1990s, post the Russian debt crisis and everything that was going on with tech, REITs were under pressure and the private market kept chugging along. I don't think that's going to happen this time around. Case in point in 4Q22, the Nucrief Odyssey Index, that's a widely followed index of open-ended mutual mm-hmm. funds. This index was down almost 5% in the quarter. That is the, that is the greatest decline since 09, and it's the second greatest decline since 1978. So we're talking about wow. almost a 20% decline on an annualized basis. Not that much different than what REITs were pricing in. REITs were up 5% during that quarter as well. So there is a little bit of a lead lag relationship that's going on here. We'll see what the year holds for us for listed REITs. They're about flat on the year after a really yeah. good start to the year. But I think I think private's going to be down and I wouldn't be surprised to see it down 10 to 20. So as you point out, like even if my conception of what commercial real estate is, is New York office buildings, we can't just like form a view of all real estate or commercial real estate based on that. That being said, like how much of the, do you say 20 trillion roughly yep. is, how much of that is sort of distressed right now or in some sort of trouble and how much is sort of chugging along? Like where of that 20 trillion, how much should we be concerned about? Yeah. So it's the right question to be asking. And there's a lot of different ways you can think about distress. The first way we think about distress is distress sales as a percent of overall transaction volumes. Okay. Before I go there, let me also just be clear. Transaction volumes are down pretty significantly uh, on a year-over-year basis, almost 70% down. Okay. I can talk about why that's happening. But distress is sort of like someone having to sell a property when they don't want to. It's a foreclosure, for instance. Distress sales are very, very low right now. I don't think they're going to stay low. I think they're going to increase. But the reason distress sales are really low right now is banks haven't started foreclosing on their loans and the bid ask Mm -hmm. spread between buyers and sellers is pretty wide. So distress sales are low. We can talk about delinquencies, CMBS delinquencies, bank delinquencies, whatever you want to. But distress sales, which is the first thing I look at, is low. It's showing signs of ticking up. I I think it's going to rise. What should financial services C-suites be thinking about around Gen AI? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Business. So what should C-suites be thinking about? What's the one key takeaway they should be aware of? Explore the potential of this technology, but with right safeguards in place. 
clearly the technology is fascinating. The potential it provides is something that we have not seen this far. So there is merit to exploring it. But at the same time, it is extremely important for organizations that are operating in regulated industries, such as ours, be guarded and have the right safeguards in place to protect themselves from the risk they are exposed to with this technology. Great stuff. Thanks, Vidya. Learn more at ey.com. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So just going back to the private valuations for a second, you know, this is something I've been thinking about and writing about, and a lot of other people have as well, but how long... Can private valuations kind of resist the gravity of lower prices and maybe deteriorating fundamentals? Like what is the catalyst or what is the process for someone to actually take a hit on that property? Because clearly, you know, if you're a big investor, you are going to want to resist crystallizing those losses for as long as possible, it would seem. Yeah, to answer your question up front, it can take it can historically take 12 to 24 months for property for private property valuations to correct to what the listed market's pricing in. Why why is that the case? Well, let's let's talk through how private valuations actually correct. The first thing that happens is transaction volumes bottom out. You have to see transaction volumes decline precipitously before property valuations be, begin declining. Why is that the case? Well, at the early start of a correction, sellers don't want to sell at the level buyers want to buy. There's just a huge bid-ask spread between the two. It's sort of like the grieving process. I'm not trying to be too flippant about it, mm -hmm. but there is a grieving process. It's denial, there's anger, then there's acceptance. So we, we think we're actually starting to get to this place where transaction volume is down 70% year over year. That that starts to feel okay to me. But, but I think this time is going to be different. I think the, the correction in private valuations is going to be much, much quicker than what we've seen previously for maybe one of the reasons hmm. that you talked about at the very beginning, which is the rise in financing costs. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm going to not try to not get too wonky here. No, with, please get get wonky as you like. Actually, our, our, as wonky as, as wonky you want. want. <laughs> we'll stop you if, you if we need something clarified, but yeah. always, uh, yes. All right. So here's a great stat for you. Since 1980, 
prior to 2022, that is. There has been less than five year, five months since 1980, that's a lot of months, where the 10-year treasury was not lower a decade forward. So let me unpack that and explain to you what that means. That means in January 1990, the 10-year treasury rate was lower than where it was in January 1980. In January 2000, it was lower than where it was in January 1990. There has been a secular decline in 10-year treasury rates. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because, as you correctly said, commercial real estate is inherently a levered asset class. There's very few owners of commercial real estate that buy a property without some amount of debt on it. So as you've been in a secular decline in 10-year treasury rates, and typically commercial real estate's financed with 10-year debt, you have always been able to refinance into lower and lower financing costs over right. time. So this is the idea that usually cap rates decline into a rising interest rate environment. I, 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 I sort of say that's not the right thing to be thinking about. Cap rates decline into a rising interest rate environment because historically that rising interest rate environment is symptomatic of an improving economy. Right. At a time that your financing costs are actually rolling down. Yeah. So of course your level returns expand, which allows cap rates to contract. Right. This time is much different because financing costs are significantly higher, not just because of the risk-free rate and widening credit spreads, but also because, guess what? Growth is slowing. We were in a stag, uh, stag, stagflationary environment in 2022. That doesn't really exist since like 1970. It's a much different ball game than what we played before. So just to do a, a little devil's advocate question here, but what does the maturity wall actually look like? And even though, you know, I, I take the point that financing costs are going up, but as long as the market remains open, you can still roll over your loan, presumably to infinity. And I, I can't remember the exact saying, but you know, there's that old joke about a rolling loan gathers no distress or whatever it is. Can people just keep rolling these over? In theory, sure. But so let, let me let me maybe answer your question first. So there's about four and a half trillion dollars of mortgage debt outstanding. That tells you on average, the LTV is around 25% for commercial real estate. That might sound mm -hmm. lower than what people think, but REIT LTVs are less than 30%. The Nacrief Odyssey Index, which I mentioned previously, which is high quality core and core plus properties, that's around 22%. So yes, smaller borrowers that don't have enough uh, don't have a lot of capital, will push the LTVs up to 50 to 60%, which you typically see in a CMBS transaction. But that's around, call it 25% of that $20 trillion market. What What is actually maturing? Well, on average, it's about, you know, call it $500 billion over the next five years each year. Okay. So you're talking about, call it 15 to 20% of maturing debt coming due each year over the next five years. What, you're, what you should hold be- up, Hold up, 500 billion- Per year. $500 billion per oh, year. And over the next five years. Over the next five okay. years. So two and a half trillion dollars over five Got years. Got it. Okay. That makes okay. sense? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, so you're talking about, you know, call it 15, 20% of debt coming due on a per annum basis over the next five years or so. And most of the debt that's coming due in 2023 were either loans that were originated in 2013 or in 2018. Mm. Now, one of the interesting things about this maturity wall that I don't think a lot of people are really considering is how much property prices generically have risen since 2013. Property prices are up a lot. That doesn't mean they're up mm -hmm. for office. That doesn't mean they're up for malls. And we can talk through that. But generically, they're up a fair amount. So if you happen to have originated a loan in 2022 when you bought a property, your effective LTV is actually a lot lower than 50 to 60% right now, given that property price appreciation. And even if valuations fall you know, 10, 20, 
next year, there's a good chance these loans are not in the water yet. Again, or, or, or not underwater, should mm. I say. This is not the case for, for Office. I don't want to give you that impression that, that you know, you're talking about effective LTVs that are you know, probably going to be a little bit higher than that. Uh, and it's certainly not the case for malls. Malls' effective LTVs, we think, are you know, around 90 95% right now. That's probably a pretty good case study, we think, for where the office market's going. But office, and since this was the focus of this, office is only about 25% of that 15 to 20% that's coming due. Okay. It's, and who's holding that? And like, yeah. yeah, so who's who's exposed to that? So it's like, okay, office... Maybe if there's maybe 125, yeah. 100 billion coming due over the next each year for the next five years, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that sounds about right. So who is who who holds that? Is you, that at banks? Is it at private funds? Like, what's the distribution? Yeah. There? So Tracy mentioned that we 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 talked a lot when we were at when she was at the Financial Times, and everyone likes to talk about the commercial mortgage-backed security market yeah. because it's easy to look at. You get spreads, you know, you understand delinquencies. You have a lot of really good reporting. The CMBS market is at best. 20% of the lending market. It's okay. actually not that big a part of the lending market. Not to bury the lead and get where you're going, <laughs> the majority of the debt coming due is held on bank balance sheets. Okay. Um, we think, you know, call it 50%, more than 50% of the debt coming due in 2023 is held on bank balance sheets. Okay. And that does make some logical sense because 2013, these are 10-year loans yeah. in the most part, there wasn't a lot of capital markets activity in 2013. Oh, I see. We were right, only we're just out of the great financial crisis, so if a bank originated a CMBS loan, there's a good chance it's still on their books. There's a very good chance it's still on their books. So most of this is held on bank balance sheets, which sort of comes back to your question at the very beginning, like how are we thinking about this risk that yeah. you know, has been out there, but has come a little bit more to the forefront uh, over the past couple of days, given some of the news with bank collapses. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about underwriting standards throughout the years? Because this is something that was a big talking point pre-pandemic, uh, you know, CRE slash CMBS. It was a really hot market. You saw a lot of people pouring money into it. And so, as sometimes happens, you saw some of the underwriting standards start to slip. Uh, can you maybe like tell us what you saw and give us some examples of the kind of deals that you saw coming through that could, in theory, be problematic now? There's there's two ways people think about underwriting standards. The first one is sort of headline underwriting metrics, things like loan to value. And the second thing is all the other things that lenders might require or not require to provide a loan to a borrower. So let's talk about LTV first and foremost. LTVs are actually fairly conservative right now and certainly were conservative heading into the pandemic. They were approaching, call it 50% LTVs, and that's sort of where they stand right now. I think that might surprise a lot of people that lending standards were actually tightening from a headline perspective. But let me explain to you why that's the case. In 2000, you know, if you were to ask me where the epicenter of froth was, uh, real technical term, for lending standards post-GFC, mm -hmm. I would have told you it was around 2014, 2015. Things were feeling really good. The banks were giving out a lot of money, so much so that the regulators in a joint statement came out and told lenders, hey guys, you basically have to slow this down. And if you don't slow it down, we might have some regulation here. That's, that, that slapping of the wrist, if you will, actually sort of worked. And banks did start to bring in lending standards. It also occurred at the same time that risk retention under Dodd-Frank was mandated. 
So what's risk retention under Dodd-Frank? That basically said CMBS issuers had to have skin in the game mm. and they or a third party had to retain 5% of the entire deal for at least five years. And so when you actually have to eat your own cooking, that changes things a little bit. So headline LTVs went down, headline DSCRs went up. These are all good things. But maybe where the devil uh, devil's in the details and you were starting to see a lot more IO loans, so interest-only loans. Mm. Those, oh, yeah, these are loans yeah. that don't you know, pay down over term right. and have a balloon maturity payment. There was you know, certainly reserves for you know, any number of different things. This is cash that's put on the sidelines. So uh, that's- Were a those lot a lot more prevalent pre-financial crisis, uh, interest-only loans? Like I feel like you heard about commercial mortgages that- you Yeah, I'm going to be a little bit flipping here, but, but anything sort of went pr- prior, okay, prior yeah, to the GFC. Sure. But look, IO loans are, are, are are pretty prevalent um, over the past couple of years. Okay, you know all those, all the additional money on the sidelines, reserves, if you will. Those were sort of, you know, not, not to say they were waived, but but there was less requirements. So while while I, I think the hard LTVs and DSCRs were pretty good, maybe the soft underwriting requirements were were softer than than they had been in the past. So a little bit of a give and take here. I would say, you know, if anything, it's really a question about where do you think the debt service coverage ratios are going? So coming out of the GFC, there was this concept of uh, uh, debt yield that came about. That's how banks underwrite loans. Debt yield is effectively NOI divided by your loan balance. Prior to the GFC and certainly the early 2000s, loans were underwritten on debt service coverage ratio. But after the GFC, no one was concerned about falling interest rates. They were only concerned about falling NOI. So you underwrote to debt yield. There's a really good scenario that some loans with really strong debt yields, because NOI is pretty good right now, uh, might have pretty poor DSCRs in the future, given how much interest rates have risen. So I, I think maybe, Tracy, to, to answer your question about like what's the what's the biggest risk here, I think it's debt service coverage ratios. NOI debt mm. yields could still be above 10%, 12%, because NOI is pretty strong right now. Fundamentals feel pretty good. But if you have a big shock to financing costs, your debt service coverage ratio could be a lot lower than two and a half times, which right. is going to re- require recapitalization. generative AI impact the way financial services firms work? Here are some thoughts from EY and real-time business. At an enterprise level, how will it impact the way we work? Just like how internet changed all our lives, this technology has the potential to have a step change in how we fundamentally operate. But uh, let me give you a few examples of what some of the use cases our clients are exploring. We are seeing our clients explore a few knowledge management use cases. For example, in in case of wealth and asset management, providing their financial advisors with right information so that they can serve their clients better. Similarly, a claims agent in insurance or a contact center representative in case of banking and capital markets. The, The theme that we are seeing is where the machine comes in and provides contextual insights to enable the humans make better decisions, better actions, in a faster manner. Learn more at ey.com. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. 
And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's set aside office for a second. Let's set aside some of the troubled cities. Are there any other pockets that are weak? Because again, we hear about a certain categories of weakness that are obvious. We've talked about them, office building in New York. How are some of these other categories? I think you said there are like 15 yeah. in total or something like that. Are most of the other ones still looking pretty good or are there weaknesses elsewhere? I mean, you're talking about a REIT market that was down 25% in 2022. And True, if you right, believe right. our views that that's the leading indicator, you know, all the property yeah. types experienced you know, some level of, of, of weakness to various different degrees. But a lot of that presumably was like multiply, multiples, right? But, 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 but yes, but multiples yeah. just a fancy way of saying valuation. Because if you saying. take one, yeah. you know, if you take the inverse of the multiple, that's cap rate. But are, right. So what I'm saying is, are there any other that are sort of like clearly seeing poor revenues or poor yeah. rental in turn, the way an office landlord? Yeah, would be? The, the, the answer, the answer is not not really. Okay. Um, because if you think about NOI growth overall, in 2022, you were at one point where plus 10%, plus 11% yeah. NOI growth on a year-over-year -year basis. That's close to a historical high. We are obviously seeing deceleration right now. We're probably around 7% right now, and we're underwriting even slower NOI growth in 2023, given recessionary headwinds that we think are real. But a lot of what's happening here is actually the refinancing risk. Mm -hmm. And it's because valuations are lower because financing costs are right. are higher. I don't want to you know make too light of this, but office in many in many respects is is the exception to the fundamental story. Yeah, um, many of the other asset classes are having qu quite fine NOI growth, but. I don't want to, you know, be too puppy dogs and rainbows over about this because I truly believe that idiosyncratic risks are real. You're going to have some multifamily properties that were purchased at really tight cap rates in advance of a improving and or accelerating revenue growth, and that business plan is not going to come to fruition. So there is there is some real risks here beyond just financing that that can, that is going to pressure valuations lower across property types. It's going to lead to higher distress. It's going to be lead to higher delinquencies. Office is the poster child for this, but I don't want to give you the idea that commercial real estate fundamentals are uniquely as bad as office because mm -hmm. they're not. We sort of think office is the exception, not 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 the norm. So you mentioned refinancing risk there, and that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about next. And I, I'm trying to avoid um, sounding like a Judy Bloom novel here or something. But where does refinancing come from? And like, is the assumption that it, I mean, I assume a lot of it is from banks, is the assumption that banks are just going to pull back on it in the current environment? Yeah. So where does refinancing come from? First of all, it's banks. 
it's insurance companies, it's the CMBS market, it's debt funds and mortgage REIT, it's the GSEs in the case of multifamily and student housing and seniors housing. Um, so there is a wide variety of financing sources out there. Banks are a big portion of that. Insurance companies are, are a big portion of that. CMBS is a smaller portion of that, but but there there's a wide variety of, of, of financing sources. So in terms of refinancing, look, I think a lot of people are focusing on the cost of financing side because that's real. You can see it every day by looking at just where the risk-free rate has gone. You know, it's at call it three and a half, three point six percent today. You know, it was two hundred basis points lower a year ago. That's a big deal. And when you think about where credit spreads are going, those are wider as well. Yeah. Tracy, just maybe just to give you some live updates on what on where these things are. The the AAA, the AAA CMBS market is pricing about 130 basis points over the 10-year treasury. And the triple B minus market is north of 900 at this point. So these are hmm. these are those are much wider spreads. The good news is you know, the CMBS market, the debt markets are actually pricing in all these things that we've been talking about. Yeah. It's not like the CMBS market is, you know, uh, uh, naive about this. 900 over the 10-year treasury, when the 10-year treasury is at 350, you're talking about almost a 12 and a half, 13% yield. That, that's a that's a pretty attractive yield given, you know, the risk of loss. So I, I do think there is, uh, is, is, a, is a lot in the price of where the spreads are right now. But look, Availability of debt capital—it's probably not going to be, you know, as as robust as it was last year or even 2019. So when you think about who's going to be able to get debt capital, I think a well qualified a, a, a well qualified sponsor that's well capitalized with a good business plan, they can probably get debt right now, even on an office property. Believe it or not, hmm. the problem with with office, just to use maybe an example, is it's <clears throat> binary. You can get debt at attractive levels, or you can't. It's 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 not like some, an office a lender is going to come back and say, hey, guess what? I don't feel really comfortable with you as a sponsor. Your business plan, I'll give that to you at a thirty or forty percent LTV instead of a fifty percent LTV. That's not the way it works. <laughs> huh. It's almost like bid out. Interesting. Wait, why is that? Is that just like a sort of like norms and cultural thing, or is it does not make business sense to try to deal with someone in, my, in those marginal cases? See all of the above. Okay. You know, it, it's if you're going to if you're a lender and you have to go yeah. to your investment committee and you're saying, "Hey, look, I'm going to lend on this office property." You got to pretty much make sure your eyes are dotted and your T's are crossed. Now, now the other reality is lenders are really focused on one thing and one thing only, getting their money back. Right. And, you know, if you don't get your money back, you take a loss, it doesn't matter what yeah. that spread was. You're not going to get paid enough. So, just on office I know we were sort of saying there's a lot of other categories besides the one that stares us in the face every day of New York real estate, but New York office space, the publicly traded instruments that seem to track New York office space. I mean, they look like really dismal. I don't know. I'm not asking for your like views on names, but like I know, you know, it's like SL Green is a company that you see owns a lot of buildings in New York and they're publicly traded. And that was an $80 stock in uh, March of 2022. And today it's a $28 stock. Prior to COVID, it was over a hundred dollar stock. Like, what is the market saying like about this type of property that's gonna be so hard? And for not them specifically, but for someone who owned property like them, what kind of situation are they facing next time they have to refinance a building or you know, remortgage a building or whatever? Yeah, well let me first, you know, 
Yeah, no, yeah. Let, let me first be clear that we're we're pretty cautious on office yeah. in our listed yeah. portfolio. Look, we have very little uh, office exposure. Why is that the case? Well, maybe to answer your first question, it, the public markets are telling you that office valuations are going to be, going to be down substantially. A lot. Why is that the case? Well, it's a, it's for three, three three reasons. First of all, you don't know where the NOI growth is going. Okay, it, it's uncertain. That's just your net operating income. Yeah, I just wanted yeah. to make sure. For sorry, that. sorry about that. Which is basically revenue minus expenses yep. for those playing at home. You don't know where your net operating income is growing. Going. You don't know how much capex you have to spend to generate that NOI, and you don't know what amount of debt you can get on it. So if you put NOI and capex and financing into it. That's how you get your levered IRR, and cap rate's just a product of that. The market is telling you, that listed market is telling you that cap rates have to go substantially higher. I mean, maybe just to come back and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and talk about this a little bit more, the listed market on average across property types is trading at a high 5% implied cap rate right now. The private market, as measured by the Nakreef Odyssey Index, is still at 3.9%. That's a crazy difference between public and private valuations. Wait, sorry, say it again. Yeah. The listed market yeah. is at a high 5% cap rate. Okay. So oh, yeah, last yeah, week okay. it was like at 5.7. It's going to be wider than that now. And a cap rate is like a P, inverse P. So that means like a 100%. 20 P. Yeah. That, 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 that's that, how in stocks you would call it a 20 P. In that, real estate that, you call it a 5% cap rate. Yeah. So multiples right now yeah. for uh, multiples after taking into account CapEx in the read space are around 18 and a half times. Okay. So okay. you're pretty close. My, my only point to you is that there's a 200 basis point difference between where REITs are pricing cap rates and where the private market's pricing cap rates. Mm. We think, you you know, before, I, before we went on, you're asking me, hey, aren't you a little bit more constructive? And I was like, well, look, I am constructive on REITs because I think the entry points are pretty attractive here. But the private market, you know, we still think valuations are going down. So if you're a legacy holder of private valuations, you're still going to have some headwinds and feel some Got pain it. in 2023. But if you have new capital to invest in private, that's probably pretty good. Like I, I want to buy low, sell high. That, yeah. I think that's going to happen in 23. And I think the, the REIT market's pricing in a lot more pain than the private markets are pricing in right now. Yeah, it does feel like, I mean, in addition to interest rates, it feels like the wild card here is basically the availability of capital. Sure. I mean, I, I'm not pushing back on that at all. I mean, commercial real estate, Tracy, I think you probably heard me say this before. It's inherently a levered asset class. So it's financing cost and the availability of capital. I think you're going to quickly figure out who can swim really strong against as the tide's going out. Why can't it keep getting worse? And but the reason I ask that is, you know, you're like, oh, I want to buy low and sell high, yeah. which everyone does. And maybe this is a moment to buy low because there is clearly a lot of distress out there. But, you know, again, of the rates move, you know, we, we had a 40 year down. We had a 40 year decline in rates. We're like one and a half years into the increase in rates. Why couldn't, like, do you worry about higher and higher for longer? Do you worry that that for offices, that this is not a trend that's going to bounce back soon? This is like in these distressed cities, distress can build upon distress. The few people not coming into an office can erode an area's tax base and make people want to stay home too. Like, do you worry about uh, acceleration of um, uh, headwinds? Are, are you asking me what keeps me out at night beyond, yeah, my, beyond yeah. my four kids? That's, I guess that's, <laughs> yes. um, I, I think- the, the, the single, if I was on here a month ago, yeah. I would have been telling you the single biggest risk was a stronger economy uh-huh. that begets higher inflation yeah. and the Fed has to do more and more to to temper that. 
And so, look, I'll be very clear if, you know, the terminal rate, so that's basically where the Fed Fed funds target rate's going, if that's closer to six than six and a half, 10-year treasury rates probably, at, at, before all of this was happening, probably aren't supposed to be at three and a half. They're probably mm-hmm. supposed to be a lot higher than that. And so, you know, I, again, I'm going to get wonky here a little bit, but we think real rates are really what drive commercial real estate valuations. Real mm-hmm. rates is the difference between nominal rates and inflation expectations. I, I think if real rates go to around one, that's probably pretty good for real estate. But if they're going to be closer to two, that's actually probably not so good for real estate. So yeah, that's absolutely keeping me up at night. Our views uh, uh, heading into this year was that we were transitioning from a stagflationary to a stagnationary market. What does stagnation mean? Well, let me let me first of all say, what is a stagflationary environment? Stagflation is where interest rates are rising and growth is slowing. The Fed was in a really awkward position in 2022 for reasons that happened in 2021. They didn't raise rates fast enough. So inflation was at record high levels. They had to raise interest rates uh, at a record pace to slow growth in the economy and the hopes of taming inflation. That's stagflation. We thought, we think, we still think that we're moving into a stagnationary environment. That's where interest rates come down and growth mm. slows. That's actually really good for listed markets. Not so great for private markets because they sort of start catching up, but it's pretty good for listed markets. Uh, you know, Best case scenario is that all the Fed's medicine starts to work, inflation slows, and they don't have to, they, they stop raising rates, but they also don't have to cut interest rates. The other thing that's keeping me up at night to be very clear is that the market's pricing in six interest rate cuts over the next 18 months. I don't want to see interest rate cuts. Think about when the Fed cuts interest rates. It's because something bad is actually happening. That's not a good thing for the market. So, you know, we actually thought we were, you know, sort of in this not too hot, not, not too cold environment. You know, maybe the unintended consequence of these bank failures is it actually is showing that the Fed's interest rate hikes are finally working and it's starting to break some things. And that makes me feel maybe counterintuitively a little bit better mm-hmm. about where we're going. I hope it doesn't push us into a really deep recession. I think re- recession is our base case. But, but you know, it's the two extremes that keep me up at night. A much hotter and stronger economy where interest rates have to go higher than where they are right yeah. now and a pretty hard recession, which, you know, I, I would argue that a recession is the base case. It's just a matter of degree. Yeah. So, There was one thing I wanted to ask you, and I think Joe and I are going to try to do an episode um, that focuses on, I guess, the physical challenges of converting offices to residential at some point. But maybe from a financing uh, market perspective, you know, could you have a situation where a lot of these offices do get converted to resi? And what would that mean for CRE investors and lenders in general? Do you know? Do CRE people who have a big portfolio of office properties, do they suddenly become residential lenders? Or, I mean, I guess they would all be classified as multifamily, but how would that work exactly? Yeah, it's sort of a good tie-in to, to, to some of the other podcasts that you've done over the past you know, couple of weeks. Look, let me, let me say at an outset, we do not have enough housing in the United States. Yeah. I think you covered that in prior podcasts. We can debate why that's the case. I think you've already covered it, but we don't have enough housing in the United States. So the, the highest and best use for a lot of these office properties is not office. And you could make a case in New York City that we are 
we are have a significant shortage of affordable housing in New York City. So it does make sense if I could make, wave my magic fairy wand and say convert from office to multifamily, you're probably supposed to do that for a variety of reasons. I, it's actually not it's actually much easier said than done um, for a whole host of different reasons, including zoning. It's not like all of these properties are zoned for multifamily. Uh, and so again, you could come back to like, how do you think about commercial real estate? It's a singular asset class with a lot of different property types. All these different municipalities have different zoning laws. And so you have to go through a rezoning. It's sort of like the same reason why prior to COVID, we were talking, there was talk about, let, well, let's just make all of these malls industrial facilities. Right. It's just not so easy. There is one-off examples where you can get it done and it makes a lot of sense, but again, it's it's not a cure for everything. Yeah. All right, Rich, we're going to leave it there. That was such a good overview of the space and, you know, clearly there's a lot going on, but you were uh, very good at walking us through the nuance of the different subsectors and the different way of looking at prices and valuation at the moment. So thank you so much. Sure. Thanks for having me again. Thanks, Rich. That was great. So, Joe, I thought that was a really good walkthrough through all of these different parts. And for me, I guess the most salient thing is what Rich was talking about, the discrepancy between the public and private valuations at the moment, because you have seen a lot of the mortgage rates just collapse in recent months. You haven't seen the same pressures on the private side, although, you know, I guess the clues in the name, uh, those particular valuations aren't quite as transparent. Right. No, I mean, if you look at like some of them, I mean, you know, listeners like pull up a chart of like Vornado or SL mm. Green, like some of these names. I mean, they're real dismal, like below the COVID lows when people were talking about, oh, no one would ever go into an office ever again. So like the between the interest rate increases between concerns about just like the actual uh, net income and so forth. The public market is giving clearly a very grim assessment. Yeah. And then also the definition of CRE as sort of a leveraged bet on interest rates and availability of capital. I think that's going to be a really good way to frame it going forward, because even before recent events and the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and worries over the wider banking system, there was obviously concern about what was going on in CRE, and it's going to be really interesting to see how this financial crisis shakes out, because if it leads to the Fed cutting interest rates, well, maybe that would be better from a pure financing cost perspective. But to Rich's point, it would mean something bad is going on in the economy, and it would probably mean that there was less risk appetite in general out there. Yeah, right. You know, it's the same intuition with stocks, which is that if the Fed is cutting rates, it's probably at a time when revenues are coming down, when net incomes are coming down, like it's often the case that it goes hand in hand. So ostensibly, it seems bullish. You know, I guess to my mind, the question is like, yes, there's going to be some cyclical shift at some point. But, you know, this is an area if it's so rate sensitive, well, we're coming off like, you know, the 40 year rate bull market. And how, it could be that these sort of elevated rates not just stay elevated for years. Maybe they're going to keep getting elevated. I don't think we really have like any, I don't think anyone like knows for sure. I mean, you could see why it's a stressed area. I did appreciate though, and I do think it is easy for us in New York to think that all commercial real estate is like a handful of half empty buildings. <laughs> and there are like clinics 
and data centers. No, totally. Although Jim Chanos, you know, he's he's short the data centers, or he at least was, so he has negative aspects of those. But there's data centers. That's its own distinct area. You know, there's there's a you know assisted living re- spaces that but I think is, are commercial real estate. So all kinds of categories. It is crazy to think that with you know the pace of interest rate hikes last year, you still saw commercial property prices go up as a total, and that you know that is because it is not a monolithic sector and it is not just massive office buildings in Manhattan. So I'm sure we're going to end up talking more about this topic. But for now, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin and Dash Bennett at Dashbot. Check out all of our podcasts on Twitter under the handle at podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots where we post transcripts, we have a blog, and a weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday. Thanks for listening. Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.